we're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. <laughs> this is Beyond the Path. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Path is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day. Welcome to season two of Beyond the Pass. For our premiere episode, I am so excited to be chatting with Melanie White. She spent five years in her 20s crewing super yachts for charter and regatta racing across the Mediterranean and the Caribbean and the Arctic. And since leaving her career as a full-time yacht chef, she's been working as a policy advisor for the UK Chamber of Shipping, focusing on seafarer mental health awareness and suicide prevention. She's written a beautiful debut memoir called Behind Ocean Lines. I do want to mention briefly that we touch on suicide near the end of the episode, not in great detail, it's more general, but if you do want to skip that, we will see you back here for episode two. Good morning, Mel! Good morning! Um, I want to jump right into your time at sea, because you'd only been on a boat like three times before you packed up your nine to five and also your chemistry degree, and we're like, I'm going to sea! Um, <laughs> what... What motivated you to move into yachting from being on land so completely? I think it was mainly mainly that I herded my well, I was herded through those those times of going through school, getting grades, or you know, getting to university, and I just plumped into a graduate job, which I found really hard to get. And when I got it, I thought, okay, is this it? Is is this is this it? And I'm not sure if I want it to be. And I think that seed of doubt, particularly as I kind of was walking into an office every day and everybody that worked there had been there, you know, was staying there for a long time. And I thought, even then, the second I got in, I, I thought, I don't think this is for me. And so it was kind of with that niggle of, mm, I don't think so, that I thought, actually, I'm going to have to switch this up. And, um, and through my boyfriend at the time, he was working in, in yachts. And this kind of opportunity opened up. And I thought, well, it's now or never, really. And we're in our early 20s, so great time to just go for it. I think also when you're doing something that's so formulaic and, like, you're sort of following mm. the path, you really need something to open up to jump into because it's so easy to just be like, but it's fine. <laughs> exactly. And also I think the whole, you know needing to have it set from that early on it's not necessary really I think we panic about getting our lives in order but actually I think at any age it's it's okay to just be like okay this isn't working what can I do to change it and maybe there are things that make that more difficult but you always find a way if you really want to well I think the thing that the myth that's been busted for me the most as I look around at the people I know is that you are going to get it into order or like you will arrive at some destination and it's like, nah, this shit just keeps churning out all the time <laughs> until we're dead, you know? <laughs> um, something that really struck me, because all I know about yachting is below the deck, which is not um, a totally accurate representation, but I was really struck because at, like in a restaurant, for example, you're going to go into a restaurant. If you're brand new to a restaurant, you've never worked in hospitality before, you're going to spend a few weeks shadowing somebody. And so you'll follow around somebody and then eventually you'll take on those tasks slowly but surely with a lot of supervision. And then all of a sudden you're sort of doing it by yourself. But what really struck me was how you literally just arrived on the boat and just had to do it. Mm. Particularly yeah. in an environment where there is so much danger and where safety is such a big issue. 
how yeah. sort of thrown in was it really? I would say my experience was extremely thrown in. <laughs> like it was, it did feel like sink or swim and no pun intended, but it really was like that. Um, I had a bit of mild training and by that I mean there are some basic qualifications that you have to have to go into your crew. But that's a five day course and that covers firefighting, sea survival, um, basic first aid, personal safety and responsibility um but all of these things are going to be different depending on what boat you're on and actually you do need to just know what that boat wants and what that crew wants and also what the owner wants and I think in that respect you could work on many different vessels and time under your belt will help but actually you have to learn how that boat needs things done and it did, it felt like sink or swim. I think I felt particularly nervous or not unsafe, but just concerned in my own ability, probably for 18 months. Um, because you, you're just having to learn so much. It wasn't just that I was doing interior, I was needed on deck. So there was this element of, well, I need to be a good team player because actually the safety of all of us depends on... That's incredibly scary. <laughs> it it really well, and now I look back yeah. at it, I think no wonder that no wonder it was so challenging because just everything around me had changed, and 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 it when everything around you changes to that extent, you know, how do you stay centered? I mean, really, and I'm I'm sure most you know it's not just in yachting, but if there's anything that comes at you that kind of just knocks you for six and any life event or even minor thing, and all of a sudden you're not in the same environment you were before it's, it's hard to keep your cool and is that really commonplace like that you would just have this like particular certification and then just go yeah particularly in like um so if you're going into a stewardessing role or or, or stewards role um but sadly you have to well, it doesn't really matter but it's still girls <laughs> girls in the interior and boys on the exterior but if you're going into a junior role it is just kind of get those minor qualifications plus your doctor's certificate and give it a go. Um, and it covers it a bit in the book of kind of there are two routes. It's kind of who you know and can you get in plus is are you going to dock walk? Are you literally going to walk behind the boats and say, do you need a hand? And some people pick up gigs and sticks. What struck me a lot about the dock walk and describing those points of entry is that they're really super not totally superficial, but like there is an element where like, and you can see it if you go on Instagram and you look at these boats and who's working on them, like they're beautiful people. Yeah. And it's like a hot person job. And I think even what you just touched on and that idea of how gendered it is that like yeah. it's women doing the interior and men doing the exterior. Yeah. Have you seen from the time you started to now any shifts in those dynamics or do you think it still sort of remains in that sort of superficiality or that gendered place? I think there's a long way to go, but I think there are some people trying to kind of turn the tide on it. There there are a number of more high-profile female yacht captains or people doing these normal, normally stereotypically male roles and that are really shouting about it and trying to get more diversity into the industry. But it is horrifically just... I mean, I look at it and I think... God, there is just no, very little diversity. And it, I think it actually actually reflects the kind of people that have these 
yachts because if you look at who can then afford to have the boats they've got to have made it to that top one percent or some people don't but they really do need to be in that top one percent and look you know look at the diversity in that pool as well i mean it's mm-hmm. also ridiculously slim so i think um i think there is scope for it to be more inclusive but for now i think it's it's a long way behind where we are in even shoreside jobs and i can't imagine that if you are somebody who's more diverse or say you're a woman working on deck or you're a female Mm. in a traditionally male role that the pressure and the expectation and therefore the space for exploitation Mm. just becomes so maximized and, like, in the book, your first bosses, I mean, they're such assholes and abusive in so many different ways. And there was something very similar to loads that we see in hospitality in terms of that very intense working hours, really poor boundaries around people's job descriptions, like, all of those things that contribute to that exploitation. But then you're living with these people in a really, really small space. Like, there's no decompression, and it's constantly in that environment. Yeah. It's really unimaginable. Did you register how bad the impact of that was going to be? Or was it sort of as you got further and further into it, you're like, this is a completely fucked up way to work and live? (laughs) I think, I think I had no, my eyes were not open walking into that situation. But equally, any job you take on these yachts, you can't guarantee who you're working with. Much like, you know, if you're, if you're going into a job interview, or, you know, you might have like a cool off period when you've started a job and you think, actually, you know, this isn't for me, but it's fine. My notice isn't too long if I if I decide to bounce. Um, there's a there's more complexity to that at sea, because if you want to exit, you know, you're you're on the boat with them. You need to have kind of put yourself in a position where you might be able to get repatriated home um you and it is I mean in many respects it is dangerous because you could be hundreds even thousands of miles from land and you need to feel safe with the people you're with and I think that particularly the risk of exploitation in terms of your job description gets I mean stretched Mm -hmm. because you know who's going to fill your shoes it's not a case if you can just go to a bank agency and find somebody to do the job because you might not be, you know, coming in to dock for ages. Or, you know, if you're, if you're, you actually can't really afford to get unwell either. You have to stay physically fit as well as mentally fit. But I had not given my mental health a second thought. I just thought, this is a really amazing opportunity. Let's just go for it. But the, the risk, actually, of then working with people, maybe if you were interacting with them six or eight hours a day or, you know, if you weren't around that so often, you would be able to find, like you say, that decompression time. But there wasn't that. And so, in my opinion, people's mental health at sea escalates so dramatically or they're, they're it escalating to a point at which it's not positive or just not manageable anymore it goes, I think, way more quickly into a serious realm because there's no decompression time. So while you might notice somebody might become depressed over a a longer period of time or the the extent at which they might hit crisis point might be over the course of potentially years, um, at sea, my opinion and my experience, that 
shit hits the fan a lot more quickly. That, not to mention just the sleep deprivation, like the general exhaustion, which mm-hmm. we know is a massive contributor to accelerating poor mental health. Mm-hmm. It is. It seems like, and you really get this impression from the book, truly like a perfect storm of mm-hmm. those things. As you started talking to more Yachty's about your experience, particularly with those first bosses that were so abusive, were you surprised on the responses or were people like, yep, I had this with this boss. And like, did you find sort of solidarity of those experiences or did you find that it was yours alone? I don't think it was mine alone. I think it's important for, in my story to distinguish what boss, because for me, um, the bosses, I, I, I think you're referring to are the captain and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, some people find abusive situations from the people, the, the actual owners of the yacht or, mm-hmm. um, from guests on board, you know, those I was speaking to people that could a hundred percent be the case. And you might be in a position where that boat, you know, the owners just aren't getting off, for example. So there was, there's that area, but for me, it was about the people I was working with and there it absolutely was the case that other people said, oh yeah, you know, that was the case with me or I, you know, I went through X amount of time of that or in some cases, you know, I know people that had reached the same limit I had mm-hmm. and were just kind of battling through the mud because there's this sense of I can't leave. It's, I had the complexity of working in a couple, which is quite common in the industry and so particularly in my case, my job and his job were, we were were employed together. So if one of us left, the other one lost their job. I mean, that's a huge amount of pressure. And you, you then start thinking, well, can I muddle through? Can I keep going? And, and also that becomes a barrier to you then asking for help or thinking you can't do it anymore, because you're aware that it's not just your own situation that of you know you're affecting this other person's situation that you care about so it was sadly not uncommon and it was actually in the I ended up having a very positive working experience once I was working with people that I could work effectively with even though you know the sleep deprivation stayed you know the long working hours but the isolation all those things that that might still have been the case but it was enough to be become a family with who you are working with I mean I think yeah it's just is a is a there's a complexity to it but the abusive nature when people work around people with high you know high wealth or high net worth individuals they get god complexes and then you end up thinking well how can I leave um or that kind of system of abuse becomes really difficult to untangle yourself from oh it's that kind of abusive working environment that feels so it's almost hard to read Mm -hmm. where it's like little digs little things not giving you the tools you totally need even though you've asked for that like all of these little incidences that end up really building and building and building and chipping away at your dignity like slowly and slowly and slowly and I think everybody who listens to this who's like in the hospitality industry of any kind is like yes and the idea of having the parameters around that be so isolating and be in such a weird dynamic in terms of your employment and your job security and like you said and I don't think I really thought about it but like you can't just walk off the boat and get on another boat and find a gig like you could if you were working at a restaurant Mm. Either because you're like in the middle of the sea, but also because the employment practice is so different. 
Mm. It is, and in its nature, it's it, you know you, you're you're working and living in a space. So the decision, it's the, the reciprocal is the same. If somebody wants to employ you, they're going to say, "Well, do I want to live with you? Do I want you know?" what's your previous reference in this industry and that was a huge pressure as well because at that point if I was to leave I'd only be getting a reference from that petty and if it was a case of you know why you leave you know Mm -hmm. why are you leaving or actually them just being so oblivious to how their treatment is detrimental they I mean I think there was extreme levels of narcissism going on and Mm. that become you know how do you reason with that and how do you then make that a really safe um, exit? If you're in a restaurant, you can just, if it really, I mean, people don't want to do this because they care about their careers, but you walk out the door, you don't, don't get back in. Mm. Um, it's not that easy, 100%. And I don't think many people find it that easy. But at least there is the scope of that option. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you're living and working with people that are, like you say, very so in the beginning, it was very subtle, subtly kind of chipping away. That becomes you. You just become a, a stranger to yourself because you can't work out why you feel so hollow. You can't work it out. It's like, oh, well, h- how did this happen? And actually, it's only from a clear headspace. You can go, hang on a minute. You you know you weren't sleeping. Your nutrition was at the spout because you weren't sitting down for meals, you weren't eating enough, you know, you weren't drinking enough and it was 40 degrees on deck. You know, you that in itself is enough for all of a sudden the negative inner voice, let alone then introducing a negative person or people into the mix. They're, they're just, it's the per, like you say, the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And then the isolation. Like, mm-hmm. I can't get off, um, I'm trapped. And I think in that way, I mean, um, for anybody that's in experiencing any kind of domestic abuse, mm-hmm. it's so trapping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do people extrapolate themselves from, from that situation? I mean, so, so. I thought something the book did really well is that we found these moments of relief because it's like, well, like, being at sea sounds horrible. <laughs> and, like, there's this moment where you're taking the sailing yacht and you're going from the Met up to the Arctic and it's, like, fucking freezing and everything is frozen and you're, like, strapped in a 90-degree angle and there's, like, waves and no one can sleep. And it's, like... And I was, like, why would anyone do this? But then there's... It's, like, then bookended by this moment of you looking for the reindeer meat mm. and developing menus and starting to think about where you are and like what it has to offer and your ability to indulge your curiosity about other people other places Mm. and it's so sweet and you're like (laughs) oh yeah that's why you'd strap yourself to a boat at a 90 degree angle and like go to the arctic circle like it does that and it provides that and i wonder if you hadn't ended up in the galley would you have been able to serve yourself those moments absolutely not i think that's actually the benefit of being the chef it's that amazing ability to go and source the food that you want to cook with and source in in the most original way because often you know we we were in locations where you know you get you get what you're given or what you can find at the market and that's the best way to cook mm-hmm. and so 
I just absolutely adored that. And when, initially, when it was difficult to find my feet in the galley, I'd find that incredibly stressful. But actually, as soon as I started, it's it's the case of anything. Once you've had enough time, you've done a bit of practicing and things become second nature, your brain just gives you space for other things to find and, and mm-hmm. to explore. And that was exactly why I did it, because mm-hmm. it was exploring those new places and it was always surrounding food whenever I was integrating it might have only been for two or three days at a time before I then got guests on for however long but it was picking up energy from those those people that you'd meet who were also just all about their food and wanted wanted you to use it and and do it just I touch on it slightly in the book of you know forging yourself as a chef is about respecting the produce and understanding where it's come from and not disconnecting yourself from that origin and I think that's when you get the most honest experience out of any meal whether or not it's on a boat or if you've cooked at home or if you've gone into a restaurant I'm sure you're most fond experiences are when you kind of get a story behind that food or the people that are serving you that food. What was your experience with cooking before you started in the industry? Cooking for myself for uni. (laughs) When you were cooking for yourself, I mean, I just want to take a moment to mark how absolutely insane that was, that you were just cooking for yourself and then you taught yourself how to be a, like, five-star super yacht chef on a boat. It's... I've never heard of anybody doing that in my life. Well, I mean, it was, it was, I did do, I mean, by no means did I have formal education, but I did in odd times off try and get onto like short courses. So I did do um, fish filleting, very basic kind of meat butchery skill. I mean, I think I did about three weeks of training, but that was by no means <laughs> I mean, it was just so difficult. Actually, when I think about it now, I'm like, oh my God, it was so hard at the beginning. It's really hard to teach somebody the kind of mindset of, well, it's a bit like a ready, steady cook. Like, this is what you've got. What are you going to make out of it? <laughs> like, but this is with such high pressure. It's like it, you've, you're serving it to people that are spending stonking amounts of money. And have eaten at the best restaurants in the world. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's just mind-blowing. And so it was a huge feeling of fake it till you make it. And <laughs> and a lot of going wrong. I think that's also part of it is I remember one experience of, you know, for, I, and I worked with this family for nearly four years. So bearing in mind this was, at this point, all on the same boat. Um, the family I worked for, I enjoyed working for them. And in, at one occasion that first summer when I'd stepped into the galley and I'd I'd gone in there through fluke, really. The chef had um, taken leave because um, they'd become pregnant. So I stepped into that role as, yeah, I think I can do it. Like, <laughs> let's give it a go. And I was given that opportunity to do so. Um, one of the... I, I, they'd really wanted grouper and I'd managed to find it. Somehow I'd managed to f- find this grouper and I baked it for, they wanted it whole baked. And so I baked it for a, enough time, definitely enough time for what would cook fish for its weight. And so I was like, that's fine. But of course you're going to then 
serve it at the table whole. <laughs> you're, not, you're not doing it from the galley. So they they started to serve it, you know, like the, the fish was being served and they were like, Mel, this isn't cooked. And I was like, how is that not, how? How is it not cooked? Unfortunately, they were really kind. Like, ha ha, are you trying to poison us? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, <laughs> this is your chef's worst nightmare. Um, absolutely, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't know what's going on. Or, you know, apologies. And um, what I liked about one of the guests was like, you know, they always wanted to offer that, well, this is exactly how you should cook it, even though, did they know? Probably not. Was that, well, you need at least an hour and 45 minutes for that. So anyway, I was like, it's fine, I'll put it back in the oven. And what happened was actually my oven was broken. And it was on, uh, yeah, it was on, um, you know, it's those things you don't think about it as well. It's not like you can just randomly get someone in to fix it. <laughs> you can't I was like well you know we're next in in seven days we'll have to try and find a a Miele engineer to come out to Italy or wherever we were to come and fix it um so you're really having to work in a way that is just a complete headache it's also like ready set cook but your oven's broken yeah stove top for all (laughs) oh it's moving it's moving and like everything's gonna fly out the fridge and you know it is it's mind-boggling but they'll, they like you say, they were just glimmers of absolute wonder, and I think that's mm. also what I wanted to make sure that came across in the book. I think there are there's a huge amount of light and dark in it, and mm. the light times come in these kind of almost movie like experiences. Before you were working on boats, what was the thing you cooked for yourself the most often? bizarrely it wasn't even very good and I never cooked I haven't cooked it for years but I used to cook a a, um, a dal a lot I don't even think it was that good but it was just one of those things that I t- learnt and I knew how to do it so I mean I, I think a lot of people do that when they when they know what they know they stick to it and they're like well I know mm. it's nutritious and you know I can I can enjoy it and and it was a dal but I don't think I cooked a dal for years and I never cooked it on the boat so it's interesting. I think that at that point, that's where my level was at. Mm-hmm. And now it's obviously blossomed into lots of other areas. And like, you're also doing all of the baking, like mm. you're doing desserts, like there mm. isn't something that you don't touch because you would have been just yourself, right? Mm. Yeah, I was sous chef, solo. KP. That's it. Everything. Yeah. And when you're oh god the stress of you know if you haven't managed to keep on top of your galley or you know your prep times are strapped into the hours you're not sailing or you can try and do a bit of prep sailing and sometimes I did but I mean you've got to be prepared for things to go flying and also you might be needed on deck you know we needed all hands Mm -hmm. to be able to hoist the mainsail or you know actually go sailing with guests so if a guest really wanted to you know if there was good wind in an afternoon then it's like, well, kiss goodbye to the galley. You're not seeing that. For f- you know, c- can you imagine that before service, you know, in an evening? <laughs> like just saying, actually, you know, you're not allowed to touch this this kitchen until about an hour and a half before you need to go, like, into service. I mean, it's just bonkers. I mean, it's such a specific skill. I wonder, was there an advantage to the fact that you learned on the boat so you didn't know anything different? I think so. It, I mean, I've worked, um, I'd done waiting in my teens and I worked mm. at quite a busy um, social club, which had like a bar and bar food in one side, but also did functioning events. And so we'd sometimes split between the two. And so I'd seen 
the kind of kitchen operations I did a bit of KPing and also service so I was fully aware of what that environment can be like but Mm. on the boat when you've got the pressure of every plate going out with your face on it (laughs) Mm. and there's no one to hide behind then that's extremely exposing and that comes with a lot of reward when you're getting you when you're really hitting it and you're Mm -hmm. nailing it it comes with a lot of terror when you're not getting it right Mm -hmm. can you this is a little bit of gossip like a little lift on hurrah a little evil (laughs) tongue but something I think about all the time when I watch below deck is how poorly behaved the guests are when the cameras are rolling and I can't imagine what happens when you're in environments, and you spoke about this so, so eloquently in the foreword of the book, but talking about how by protecting the anonymity and identity of the guests and having that be such a secure environment that it really sacrifices the personhood of the crew. Mm. And particularly in terms of providing the food, which is such a massive, massive part of the experience, like you touched on before, were there moments that stand out to you where you just had to throw up your hands and be like, this is actually insane behavior. (laughs) Like, what's the worst thing you witnessed a guest do on a boat? I, one charter comes to mind. Um, And this was, you know, at the point at which I'd become established. I was working with people I liked. Um, You know, I, I enjoy, you know, it was home for me. And in general, you know, I loved my job. Um, We had a charter where, it was real, it was a week of two halves. So I had this, you know, this person had come on board for their, a big birthday and they just got their family on for one half of the week. And then halfway through the week, they swapped for basically a lad's holiday. And the, beha- oh my gosh, on the first, I mean, grown men, on the first night, I mean, they, and the, the wine that he got was really tip-top wine for that trip and he'd been really looking forward to you know experiencing it with the food and and really making the most of it and they chug I mean his mates were chugging it like it was just a cheap oh. bit of lager down the pub to the point where they were like holding the the champagne glasses on the you know the bit of skin between your thumb and your forefinger yeah. balancing the sh- expensive champagne glasses on that bit and just lifting up and tipping it into their mouth without holding the champagne glasses i mean ter- like as people guardians to the this equipment where you've only got so many spares and you need to do the whole season or you need to you know if if, if you have breakages you're going to have to order them in with those embossed labels on you know all of these things that you're thinking please don't please don't damage the boat there was they were doing that he I did this really really um you know he'd wanted this really special birthday dinner and he was sick down his front during the first course oh no he then was like basically passed out and his mates were like do you know what we'll just he's covered in sick let's just chuck him in the sea and I remember just being like oh my gosh he's gonna sink like a stone do not throw him overboard and so I remember <laughs> I remember the captain, like, going, no, 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 like, running after them as they were about to, like, throw this guy who's the principal guest off the back of the boat. And he literally just started sinking. And the captain had to jump off, save him, get him back on board. And it'd be like, guys, this is it's not just the case of, like, 
the the safety like yes you can do you, you know yes you're on a yacht and you think you can do whatever but there's some you know this is serious some people can die people can die <laughs> and yeah. and so they were all just i mean that doesn't seem so bad in terms of like it's pretty bad like if you think about the behavior at a dinner table it's pretty pretty bad but they were all grown men probably in their 40s like you would think they could probably handle their drink but then all of them all of them were sick in their cabins onto like cashmere blankets that were horrifically expensive i mean the the stew i still feel for her to this day you know and the next morning having to go into like cabins that are just covered in puke and it's just, you know, you wouldn't... I'm, I'm sure there are people that go and stay in hotels rooms and are like, well, I can do what I like because someone else is clearing out my mess. But it it really... It's not the same and it's just... It, it, that is when I think that was the first time or the only time, I think. I think actually that was the only time I experienced the lack of dignity or, or not showing any form of regard for the crew Mm. and that being on the whole I think we had really lovely guests sometimes and sometimes you get difficult guests but not Mm -hmm. not unreasonable Mm -hmm. but I think that time I thought you know what this this can't fly this this can't fly was that sort of the tipping point of motivating you to move back to land or what was sort of the how did you make that decision for yourself Actually, no. I've I moved on to um, from that boat onto another boat with you know um, good friends that I was working with. The boat itself was great, but I just felt like just a gut instinct. I was like, do you know what? This is my time. I've I've ticked off everything I want to. I've done enough miles of sailing to go around the world twice. Like that, that'll do me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many more how much more bad weather I want to go into or how many big deliveries. Um, and sure, you have to then kiss goodbye to the, you know, the amazing sunsets at sea or the dolphins, the whale, you know, all the, the, the whales. That, I mean, the things that make it absolutely out of this world, you have mm-hmm. to also kiss goodbye to that too. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to leave on a high, really. And, yeah. and also I'd written the book and I thought, do you know what, actually... I started off writing it for myself and by the end I thought actually no I think I want this to be out there and I want to do work that actually tries to support people in these environments a bit more. Something that was so shocking that I learned reading it was that statistically so it's that one percent of deaths in the UK are classified as suicide and the rate at sea is six times that amount Mm. which is I mean that's a totally shocking and upsetting number it also, when you add in the fact that a lot of those deaths probably don't register if somebody falls into the water mm-hmm. and can be mm-hmm. classified as accidents, but also that, like, those bodies, like, you can't just call the ambulance service. Like, those mm-hmm. stay with you on the mm-hmm. boat. And so mm-hmm. the ripple effect, and I mean, suicide is dramatic for the folks around the person who's passed away, but to have it in that environment, I genuinely can't imagine how traumatic it is. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that's extreme, but as you've talked about and as the book touches on, ill mental health is massive and particularly in these environments so exacerbated and I'm wondering how mental health was talked about when you were working in that community and how it's sort of understood in the seafaring community um 
Yeah, good question. I mean, the, f- the first thing I'd say, I just have to put the stat into context because the statistics around it are so hard to get because of the complexity of the job, mm-hmm. which you touched on. Um, and that one in that that figure was for the UK versus, as far as we know, the whole of the seafaring population, which is about 1.89 million. But But that might not include a whole host of people that aren't working... Oh, they might be working on private vessels or it doesn't include the fishing industry. I mean, there, there could be so so much more that we don't know. Um, I don't think really... I think it might be changing, but my mental health or mental health of those around me was just not touched upon when I was working. I really would like to think that it might be changing or that there's an opportunity for this boat to really cast it into mainstream focus. Mm-hmm. So that it kind of puts pressure onto the need of the necessity of exploring it and kind of working out a way in which it becomes you know you know removing the stigma that's fine I think on land we've kind of got I feel like maybe it's just because we work in these circles a lot Rachel I don't know but it feels like we're getting there with the stigma maybe yeah, we're not it but does, it, does. it feels like it's it is kind of pervading not just hospitality jobs I mean it's still difficult to speak about in that environment but corporate jobs you know there's there's some need for mental health policy um in the seafaring community the kind of the method of doing that just seems one step more complex because how do you provide support for someone remotely and also Mm -hmm. with poor internet connection and there's all of the want to do that and I think particularly now I've worked a bit in shipping and the work I've done there there is awareness there's no fix all for for a start I think there's there's a reluctance there's either in one camp a reluctance to say is it really that bad and then there's a lot of people like whistleblowing saying no it is bad and actually like you say if someone takes their own life on board it's their crewmates that are actually going to pick up the pieces. And I've, you know, read story. I mean, I, I am aware of stories that are so traumatic for individuals mm-hmm. that are then just expected to keep working. Mm-hmm. Or you've got to preserve this body to get it back to, you know, back or, or repatriate the body. And, you know, and even in the complexity of the pandemic, this is extremely sad, but there was a case of borders not saying yes we will take that body in and then yacht uh, no this wasn't a yacht ships diverting to different continents to try and get these you know this body ashore and back to their family I mean in meanwhile you've got the same crew on board that haven't had any rest or time to decompress you know they might hopefully their companies have given them the opportunity to speak remotely with a counsellor but I mean Mm -hmm. it's so complex and so sad and I think there is this drive in me anyway to try and make sure it's on everyone's agenda and I think obviously my story covers the yachting industry and, and my experience of experience of suicidal ideation but it's further spread than we would like to think and I really hope this can kind of open people's eyes and ears. Well it's certainly opened mine and 
it was shocking but really beautiful to read. And I'm so glad that it's out there. I'm so glad that everybody is going to get to read it. But we're going to do a little bit of quick fire. Oh. So first thing that comes to mind, although people give me a lot of shit with these questions and they're like, these aren't quick fire. And I'm like, well, not if you take your time. (laughs) Um, If you could only go to one London restaurant for the rest of your life, what restaurant would it be? Fallow, hands down. Favorite dessert? (gasps) Tiramisu. Best? Oh no, I have to take that back. Okay. Uh, Pistachio gelato with a bit of mold and sea salt on top. Oh, go on, (laughs) delicious. Um, What's the best item on the menu at McDonald's? Mm. Cheeseburger. Oh, that's crap. Carry on. No, I like a cheeseburger. I had from well, I had my first Big Mac when I was pregnant, and I th- that hit the spot. So maybe I should say Big Mac. One, I'm no offense to the cheeseburger. What's <laughs> your favorite view in London? Uh, just any view of the Shard, looking at the Shard. Okay, I have that also, and every time I see her poking out somewhere this... I am, I always turn to my girlfriend and I'm like, "Isn't she mighty?" <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend's like, "Go away." <laughs> No, but, but I, it, it, it just does something to me. Inside, I just feel there's something in this, like, strength and defiance of this object that's just yes. there. And what I love is that it's south of the river, you know? It's not even yes. with the other folk. It's like, do you know what? I'm here. I'm on my own. Look at me. I'm proud. And I'm nailing it. I love it. And I love it. It always pops up and surprises me when I get a little peeksy poo of her. <laughs> Absolutely obsessed. Who is your dream dinner guest? I literally can't think of anybody <laughs> this is so disappointing you're like no i eat a lot you know what's sad i can only think of my friends <laughs> it's a lovely thing but my friend i just can't i can't think of anybody that i want to have dinner with more i do think if i was going to go for somebody that was famous i'd go for somebody like um glennon doyle or um Elizabeth Gilbert. I know that's really classic. Like, oh, you put later in life, pray love, but yes. later in life, lesbians. And I think there's something in that. I think they've got such wit. They know what they want from life, and they just they offer words of wisdom. And so I always find a lot of comfort in what they've got to offer. And so I think you would you would be there until the you know early hours, sharing like your life stories. You know. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Um, can you plug the book a little bit? Where can people find it? Where can they pre-order it? Where can they find you? You can find me at Cookin' a Nook in on Instagram, and the book will is available on Amazon. It's available in Waterstones, um, the Bookshop.org. I think I'm saying that right. I always think, is it .org or .com? Anyway, you'll be able to find it. It's on lots of different platforms. And also, hopefully, you'll be able to see it in some independent bookshops as well as mainstream bookshops. We're going to include a link to where you can buy the book in the show notes. Um, This has been Melanie White. The book is behind Ocean Lines. It's out on October 10th. If you love hospitality, you love good books, and you have watched too much Below Deck this summer, (laughs) sort yourselves out. Um, Mel, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Beyond the Pass is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at kellyscause.